Our readings today are from two different texts of Scripture. The first is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. The second reading is from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 7. And I'll just read a couple of verses here. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello, friends. Uh, welcome back to the Christ Church Oceanside podcast. This is Father Ryan here. And um, we've been doing a couple things over the last few weeks. And so I just want to kind of give a preface here to explain what today will be. We've been talking about the things necessary for our youth. Uh, to prepare for their baptisms and their confirmations coming up on Easter. Uh, they've spent 10 weeks covering Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so now we're talking about things about what it means to be a part of the church. And so the previous week we looked at what it means for us to confess in the creed that the, we are a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So if you've missed that, I'd encourage you to go back to that one and listen to that. We also looked at the five essential marks of what the apostolic church looked like in the beginning of Acts. That as a people, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, so they were scriptural. That they broke bread and said the prayers together, that they were sacramental. That awe came upon every soul, and that there were supernatural workings of the Holy Spirit through that community and healing and giftings and things like that, that they were self-sacrificial in their love towards others, um, that they shared their goods with one another to make sure, make sure that there were no needs in the community, and lastly, that the Lord um, added to their number daily. So what that leaves us with, the five marks of the apostolic church, is that the church, according to the one Jesus built in his apostles, is scriptural, sacramental, supernatural, sacrificial, and salvation. So these are the five things that the church is meant to, to be about, and really what it means to be the church. So I want to move on from there to kind of help answer some other questions, like if that's what the apostolic church looked like, then what happened in church history to, to where we end up where we are today? 
with there being so many different churches? And what does it mean to be a part of Christ Church Oceanside, but also what does that mean to be in an Anglican church? What the heck is that? And how do we understand what Anglicanism is and what does it mean for you to consider being Anglican? So to do this, I think what we need is a bit of church history 101. And so we're going to walk through a ton of stuff today. Don't feel bad if you got to pause and kind of come back to it, do it in segments. Um, but hopefully it serves you well to kind of get the landscape of what exactly has happened in the history of the church and how do we understand where we are today. Now, a lot of people are like, well, you know, this might be boring, especially because this was taught yesterday at church for our youth. Um, you know, this is just too much historical, factual information. Kids couldn't possibly like this. <laughs> but if you know my kids, my kids are like diehard Star Wars history fans and Marvel comics. And they'll argue with you about what is legitimately canon and what is not. And I've met tons of kids who know all their favorite sports team stats and or even, you know, whether that's Pokemon or something else. But kids have the ability to retain this essential knowledge. And so it's not over people's heads. If anything, it's essential. If our kids are really going to be followers of the way of Jesus, if we're going to train them well, that this is stuff that they got to know. So what we see of the early church is this. We have the apostolic church. And over the next 1,000 years, I realize that's a lot, um, having emerged in the eastern Mediterranean region within three centuries, it spreads to Europe, North Africa, parts of Asia, and continues to expand during the Middle Ages, reaching as far east as China and as far west as Ireland. And some estimate by that point, by, you know, 1080, again, there's not consistent um, censuses that we have access to. Um, but they estimate 30 million Christians within the first thousand years of the church. But again, we can't know that for, for sure. But what we have is this like wildly, in my opinion, beautiful expression of what church is meant to be because they're theologically devoted. They're really into the teachings of the apostles. So they want to know the essentials about Jesus, what Jesus has accomplished, and what the implications are. That's what the epistles are all about. What does it impact? How does it impact the person? How does it um, impact or what are the implications on us in terms of our relationships and the community? What's our purpose in this world and what's going to happen in the future, right? Is this salvation that Jesus achieves going to be for everyone? Is it going to be for the whole creation? What does it look like to have a, a, a human existence without evil and sin someday? What does it look like for God to recreate all things? This is expansive content that the apostles are teaching about. So the early church is obviously enthralled with this stuff, as we should be. Like This stuff is awesome and is real, right? It's not just theoretically awesome like fantasy or film. This is the real deal. And... 
and it's available now in the present. So when we look at the apostolic church, they love the teachings of the apostles. They love the scriptures, right? Going back to the the, the prophets and the the psalmists and, and all of the Old Testament scriptures. But they're also super stoked, like high expectations on the importance of the actual gathering of the church because there's, they're also sacramental, right? So they have this high view of the scriptures to go, teach me, I'm starving. But this high view of the sacrament to go, I don't want to just hear about this. I want to experience it and live it. I want to intake it into my being. And that is the radical nature of the table is to go. This is not just good news for the mind. It's good news for the whole person, spirit, soul, mind, body, community. We're all made one in Jesus and from that place, it makes sense that they would be um, full of God, full of the Holy Spirit, and seeking for miraculous supernatural things to take place around them. Whether that is through prayer for healings, whether that's prophecy, um, whether, whether that's gifts of knowledge or administration, building healthy, beautiful structures within the church. Um, and it overflows from this gathered moment to this lived community that says, if there's a need and I have um, provisions, I'm going to provide for that need as the hands of Jesus. I'm going to give up my wealth to those who are in need in my community. And so they live this radical generosity that goes, not only here's my tithe to the church, because I believe in its essential nature of being with and in Jesus. Christ is the head, Christ is the groom, the church is the body, the church is the bride. Christ is our great high priest, the church is his temple. Boy, do we love giving our tithes to that. But also, we make sure that every need is met in the community. Having received so much from God, man, do we want to give to others to make sure that they experience that same grace. This is an electrified community. You're, you're hearing about God's cosmic salvation achieved in the humility and foolishness of the, the crucified Christ, people are living out this like kingdom reality of like in heavenly things, but at work on earth, fixing social problems through passionate generosity. What, what do we think is going to be the result of that? The result is going to be salvations because people want in on this good news community. So that makes so much sense of the rate at which it spreads in those first thousand years of the church is that this is just incredibly good news. Now, in the midst of all that, so here's where I want us to be careful is that that's fantastic and that's all true. 
But I also don't want us to have this kind of like idyllic or romantic view of the early church as though it had no problems for a thousand years. If you do any even casual reading of the New Testament, you will very quickly see that it is not idyllic or romantic. It's a mess. Just like the foolishness of the cross is to the world of like, how could this possibly be good news, the good news of salvation? It's so ridiculous. The church is the same way. It's a foolishness to the world in its weak state, its imperfect state, its controversies, its messes, and its disunity. So I want us to be careful here because when, what we're going to look at here first is that the church holds a state of 1,000 years of unity. So for 1,000 years, the church sees itself as one. But all through the New Testament writings and all through church history in that 1,000 years, there is infighting within the church, cultural divides, economic divides, power struggles, relational breakdowns, sexual sinfulness, arguments over feasts and fasts, and full-blown heresy, which is wrong belief about Jesus and the nature of sin. And people walk away from the faith there. They break relationship with one another. There's still all the same drama that we see today in the church. So hear me. Nowhere in the Bible or church history do we see a perfect church without difficulties. Even the text that we looked at last week with the apostolic church and those five essential S's, it's only within a couple more chapters that there's a full-blown fight between um, the Greek-speaking Gentile widows and the Jewish widows getting better treatment. So this stuff shows up right away in the church. Not to mention one of Jesus' disciples betrays him. Well, they all betray him, but Judas especially. So what we end up seeing, though, in the unity of the church is they actually have a threshold to handle all of these types of difficulties and dysfunctions and struggles and hardship without seeing themselves as separate from one another. Even if you take, for example, probably the most famous her famous heresy in the, in the early church is the Arian heresy. Now, Arius was a priest that taught that Jesus was more than man, but less than God, and so questioned the divinity of Jesus. And his heresy caught a ton of steam. Like, people really actually grabbed onto it because it kind of made things easier for them and understanding that God would actually become man just seemed too much. So this almost kind of like demigod type figure seemed a bit more palatable to that kind of Roman world. But there's so much disagreement and, and disruption that this created within the church, even what we would consider orthodox bishops. So bishops that held to the apostolic faith and the apostles good deposit of Jesus like St. Athanasius, he was Bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. He was exiled for a total of 17 of the 45 years he was bishop because he stood for the doctrine of the Trinity, that Christ was divine. 
So here's like a solid, incredible, great bishop. And he is expelled from the diocese that he's overseeing. And because of Arianism's rise and influence, and yet Athanasius doesn't see himself as separate from the church. He didn't have to go split off and start his own thing. He sees himself in unity with the church. So that's a pretty wild thing. Though they can disagree on many matters, there's never a formal separation within those first thousand years. Now, there's some kind of small sects that break off, and, the, and we don't have time to go into all of that during that time. But largely, the church is in a united state. So here's the question we have to ask first, I think. What was it that made them one despite all of the disagreements, difficulties, and differences? How do they maintain unity for a thousand years, even while they have all of that difference and disagreement. I think the first thing is this, is that they have unity in Jesus. Listen to this quote by St. Augustine of Hippo. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and therefore there is one church, and hence the Catholic Church itself, the universal church, which is indeed the one church, is called so because it extends throughout the whole world from one end of the earth to the other. I think this starts to get at this idea that in their minds, they're so united to Christ, and in being united to him, they are then united to one another. Separation for them is not within the realm of possibility. They just don't see it as an option. Because to be united to Jesus is to be united to one another, even if they're really freaking annoying, <laughs> even if you're in really big disagreement, even if you think that person is doing very, very wrong, unhelpful things. They just don't see themselves as having the power to separate them from from themselves because they're both united to Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't protocols within the church for church discipline and expelling the immoral brother, you know, things like that. Those things exist. But the idea that like the Gentile Christians would say, we're no longer uh, part of the same church as the Jewish Christians, it just doesn't factor in for them as a possibility. The second thing that we see is that there's a unity in the good deposit or what was called the rule of faith back then. It's this idea that the gospel isn't something we determine or we decide or even we discern. The gospel is something that we receive, we inherit as a gift from Christ to the apostles and the apostles to the church and the church to us. Here's how St. Irenaeus speaks of it. The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. This preaching and this faith the church has received and diligently preserves as if one house and one heart. I think one of the big pieces of, of the early church, the great strengths of their unity that we see, is less individualism, actually. So they see it more as this is something that has empirically happened 
and has been passed down to us, this good news. So it's not for us as individuals to determine what we want or what we even believe or what we decide is the Christian faith. Instead, we're saying, this is the faith. I have heard it and I believe it. I receive it. In our day, we have so much every individual is seemingly deciding for themselves. They are their own magisterium of belief. The early church doesn't function like that. They're, they have this idea of kind of a submission. So what that leads to is less opportunity for schism because not every individual is seeking to kind of um, you know, generate their own convictions about the gospel as much as receiving them. Now, the third piece is this. So they have unity in Jesus, unity in the good deposit, and unity in the traditions. Here's how St. Ignatius of Antioch talks about this. Now, St. Ignatius is coming like within the time of Paul, would have grown up in the time of Paul and led after. Let your worship be common and let your prayers be in common so that by common prayer and common supplication, a common mind may be brought into unity. And this is actually a very big theme of church history. So that the early church had unity in their traditions, meaning they had uh, unity in their teaching. As we talked about, there's the tradition of teaching. We see that in like the creeds. And we get that, obviously, in the scriptures. Um, but we also have a unity in the traditions and how the church worshipped. Now, the churches in all of these different parts of the world would not have been uniform, right? They, they don't all look exactly the same. There's actually a lot of cultural difference, even in the New Testament, right, between the Jewish church and the Gentile churches, what we're talking about here in that there's a commonality is that there are essential elements usually surrounding the, um, the act of communion, the service of communion, or as is known as the Eucharist. Eucharist just means Thanksgiving. But there's essential elements to the gathering of the church and prayer started to form even as early as the New Testament. And we, if we had time, we could pull out and show some of the different New Testament examples where like confessions are springing up or prayers are starting to take shape or benedictions or doxologies. These are prayers that kind of hit the essentials of the faith and end up kind of catching on to go, let's formalize this and make sure we say this every week. The Lord's Prayer being a primary example of that. The words of institution at communion, right? The same words that Jesus uses at the Lord's Supper are the words that we use when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So Ignatius is kind of touching on this, is going, look, if our worship is common, our prayers are in common, then there's common things that we're asking for together. And what we're going to end up with as a church is a common mind. That's in unity. So what we see of the unity of the in the traditions of the early church is unity around the teachings of Jesus, unity in the worship of Jesus in the form of its kind of ancient liturgy, but also unity in their 
um, authority structures. A big theme that comes up in the historic church is this idea of apostolic succession. That you have the original apostles appointed by Christ, but also they appointed others to take their office after them. Now, these weren't called apostles. They were called bishops because they're trying to communicate that there's a difference between the original 12 apostles of the faith and those who would then take on the mantle of that office and the anointing, but not have the same, you know, authority. So meaning a bishop would, would take on the authority for the church that the apostles had, but what they wouldn't have is authority to change what the apostles had taught. So there's a delineation to be made there between apostles and bishops. Now, these bishops were trained by the apostles, grew up in the apostolic church. And so there's this idea that there is an apostolic succession from the original 12, then laying hands and um, ordaining and anointing their successors. So one of the big themes of the early church was actually to keep track of those succession lines, kind of like a family tree of bishops and archbishops. And, and so as the apostles then um, put into place bishops as their successors, priests or presbyters, in the New Testament to oversee the individual churches and deacons to share in that ministry as missionaries, but also as servants within the church. This is what we end up with is what is known as apostolic succession. So you would know a bishop is legitimate by that succession. You would know that a priest is a legitimate priest by that succession. So these are all components that kind of helped shape a thousand years of unity within the church. Now, can I give you kind of just one more quote here from St. Cyril of Jerusalem? This kind of captures how they thought of themselves within the church. We do not divide the body of Christ, which is undivided, nor do we break the blood of Christ, which is indivisible. Rather, we partake of the one bread and one cup so that we may become one body and one spirit in Christ. You can catch the theology of the early church in these words. They're going, we don't have the power to break this up. We're receiving one thing and that one thing unites all things unto itself. So what we end up with is this idea of kind of like a tradition that's carrying the early church along, inspired by the holy, the work of the Holy Spirit. That this is what comes out of the birth of the church by the Spirit. This, this is the kind of church he makes. And this is the kind of tradition that Paul is speaking about in 2 Thessalonians, when he's saying, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter, this is what he's referring to. It's not just a human-made tradition. 
It's the great tradition. Now, what we end up seeing, though, is that as this goes on for a thousand years, that the church kind of remains in this unbroken state, then something happens in 1054 AD. And this is known as the Great Schism. Now, the Great Schism was a split that severs the church or breaks the church into two pieces, the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And that's speaking globally, like the, the church in the East and the church in the West. Now, the Great Schism came about for three kind of main reasons. The first is that there's theological differences, right? As time goes on, different parts of the world essentially kind of start to emphasize or grow in or articulate their theology more and more and more over time. And there's some kind of differences that start to pop up. Now, in the early church of that time, there was these kind of centers. Some people have referred to them as apostolic centers. They're these cities around the world that kind of turned into like Antioch. We see it start to happen or Jerusalem in the New Testament. The church grows very large and it kind of makes church planting possible, but also it's training leaders and helping them form their theology in those spaces. Other places like that are Alexandria in Egypt became this like great seminary. So, but they start to kind of specialize in their specific theological takes and things like that. So what happens is the Eastern Church and the Western Church, they have various theological differences. Even things that we might consider very kind of, you know, secondary, like whether or not the bread in the Eucharist should be leavened or unleavened. What are the roles of the Pope, the use of icons in worship, different things like that. But theological differences are not new. That's been happening through all of the history of the church. So the second component that contributes to the Great Schism is political and cultural differences. So the Eastern Church is heavily influenced by the Byzantine Empire, while the Western Church was far more influenced by the Roman Empire. These differences led to a sense of cultural and political rivalry. And, you know, I think we can see this very much today in the fact that politics do tend to influence churches. I don't think that's healthy. The church should be influencing politics um, non-directly, I think, in a lot of ways. But, but this is what we see is that this kind of political cultural piece starts to play a factor in it. And then there's this third element, which I actually think is probably the most significant, because the other two, again, have always been at play within the history of the church. And this third piece is this, is this power struggle. Now, the Pope in Rome, so that's essentially the bishop over all the bishops and over all of that region, claimed authority over the entire Christian world, saying that because Peter was apostle in Rome, then whoever is his successor is over the entire Christian world. Now, the Eastern patriarchs, patriarchs is, is kind of this idea of father, um, is the language they use in the East to describe those who lead the church. The Eastern patriarchs resisted this claim and asserted their own authority. 
So this power struggle eventually led to a breakdown in communication and a full-blown split between the two churches. Now, what the Great Schism, I think, reveals is how the church tends to drift towards understanding or defining itself primarily on its traditions, politics, and cultural differences over Christ himself. Now, traditions are healthy when they serve our finding our true identity, and traditions are healthy when they point us to the person of Christ. Where traditions are not helpful is when they take the place of Christ. When following the tradition is actually what gives you your identity, your confidence, your place, um, your belonging instead of Christ directly. Now, separation produces identity in differences instead of identity from what you hold in common. And I think what the Great Schism does is starts this huge precedence within the life of the church. And so because now the focus is on identity and what makes us different instead of what the unity that we have and what we hold in common, what it leads to is the differences tend to become the focal point of the traditions. And so that, I think, is this drift into traditionalism. And so that's with a small t, not a capital T. Now, tradition is an inheritance which the individual receives and follows. If done well, Jesus says, from the heart and should serve one's faith in Christ. While traditionalism rules over the individual. The individual exists to serve the tradition instead of the tradition serving the individual at a heart level. That's the difference I think we're talking about between the great tradition serves an acceptance of Christ from the heart and traditionalism rules over the person. And to be honest, can actually crush and suppress the heart. Now, here are some of the marks of traditionalism I think you might see in some churches. And this isn't just old school churches. This is, you can find this in just about any church now. The first thing is there's clericalism. And where there's clericalism, there's corruption. Now, what clericalism is, is a, a, a too high a reverence for the clergy, for those in power. It's an elevation of them in power. And it, what it tends to end up feeling like is a ministry of control instead of a ministry of service like Jesus created. The next thing that you start to see is that where the clericalism, because the powerful position is so held so high, then there's always justifications for corruption. Because I'm so special, I deserve these special things. And that's where corruption comes in. How that's experienced for the person in it, though, right, for the congregant or the everyday follower, is that the pressure of the tradition tends to turn upon them. So your salvation or your success is through works, right? The emphasis is on what you do to achieve and to earn or to merit your salvation. 
And what often happens in traditionalism is a narrowing of theological and biblical interpretations and positions, right? It becomes so niche. This is who's in if you hold and say these words these ways, and this is who's out if you say it differently. And the identity markers tend to go beyond the gospel and beyond the scriptures to their specific teacher or their specific way. And then what this leads to ultimately is an institutionalism. Institution then matters more than the individual person and their faith and well-being in Christ. This is exactly what takes place in the Western Roman Catholic Church, that they fall headlong into this for a period, a deep period of time. So between the Great Schism and the next 500 years, this is really what starts to take place in the West, is this traditionalism. What ends up happening is we start to see that the clergy of the Western Roman Church lived immoral and worldly lives, right? They weren't living congruent with the implications and the outcomes of the gospel. They would sell offices of archbishop and bishop and priest. uh, of So all these offices of leadership in the church, they would sell to wealthy families for political and social power. They enforced celibacy upon the clergy, which just led to secret sexual deviancy. Again, departures from the scriptures. They were selling indulgences. And this is a this is a big piece of it, is that they were selling they were trying to raise funds for elaborate church projects and things like that. The church was essentially going to going bankrupt for all of its uh, ridiculous expenditures. So what they decided to do was was create a teaching where they would sell indulgences, a piece of paper that would grant you forgiveness of sins and reduce time in purgatory, which you would work your way through sanctification towards heaven. Instead of this confidence in the saving, forgiving work of Jesus, you would purchase degrees of forgiveness. It's full-blown corruption, but also betrayal of the fundamentals of the way of Jesus. Another part of what took place in that time period was setting the Pope and what was called the magisterium up as a higher authority than the Bible. So the, the Pope at that time could then just make doctrinal statements that became a kind of law that the church had to believe and follow instead of having a higher authority than them, which is the scriptures themselves. Now, part of these wrong teaching was that it really detracted from the role of Jesus and elevated the roles of the bishop and the priest to be a mediator between you and God. So rather than Christ being our only mediator, it was the clergy were the mediator between you and God. And they basically robbed the church, the parishioners, of access to the Bible. They weren't teaching it. They weren't able to read it in their native tongues. They didn't have it accessible to them. And so they just, it became pure tradition without any scripture. 
And so what the actual gathering of the church would look like on a Sunday was a Latin liturgy, which they did not speak. Only the wealthy or the educated would speak that. And so the people did not speak or understand what was happening in the service, nor the symbolism, um, because they weren't being taught or catechized well in regard to those things. So what it ends up being is that you're just showing up. The service is happening on your behalf. The clergy then says, you come to me and I'll go to God for you. There's even the removal of the full participation in the sacrament where they would only receive the bread and not the wine. And so you can imagine this led to so much despair. It's a robbing of the gospel from the people by the church itself, by those in authority. So this and more is what led to what we know as the Reformation. So if you could picture this, you have the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is continuing on. It has its own problems at one point, the Assyrian and the Oriental Orthodox Churches. They actually leave, they break from the Eastern Orthodox and join the Roman Catholic. But then you have the Roman Catholic Church continuing on, and that brings us to 1517. And at this time, we have the Protestant Reformation. Now, this was begun by a German priest named Martin Luther. He taught the scriptures in a seminary, and because of his access to the scriptures, he started to see that the Roman Catholic Church was not in line with the apostolic church of the scriptures. And so what he ended up doing, first he started teaching against these things openly, but then he wrote a thesis of 99, or sorry, 95 complaints or protests against the corruption and apostasy of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, what this did was essentially kind of nail down, figuratively and actually, he nailed his thesis to the doors of his church. And what happened was this thesis got reprinted and spread out around Europe to go, look, somebody is calling the church to task to say, you're not following the scriptures. You're betraying the fundamentals of the gospel and you're falling away from Christ. But part of it was when you read the thesis, when you heard the teachings that were coming out of what are, are called the reformers, seeking to reform the church, is what you heard was the true gospel. Is that they were calling the church back to believe in Christ and Christ alone. And when you heard the real gospel, it was such a relief for tired, broken, beaten down souls that felt that they could not buy their salvation. They could not achieve their forgiveness. They could not get their hands on God. That now finally the good news was out again and it was spreading like wildfire. So this protest and this call for reform spreads throughout Europe and the goal of the reformers was to return to the church to that original apostolic origins through an emphasis of five things. Five things that they called solas. In Latin, that means alone. So five alones, essentially. 
Now, the five solas of the Reformation are this. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, Soli Deo Gloria. Now, these are in Latin, and which I think is a little ironic, I'll, I'll be honest with you. So they don't fully help us yet till we translate them. But here's what they mean. In Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, and glory to God alone. This brings the church back to the true apostolic nature. So here's what that means. Sola Scriptura, or Scripture alone, means this, that the Bible is the only authoritative source of religious truth, and its teachings are sufficient for faith and practice. That the Reformation recovered and recentered the Scriptures in the church, but not just in the church, for the church. What they did is translate the Bible into the spoken word language of those places. So Martin Luther's work was to take a Latin Bible, which was translated by St. Jerome, and translate it to German, and then print it so that the average person could either read it, and if they couldn't read, hear it. But imagine that. Imagine church without the good news in the scriptures, never getting to hear it. Now, the second one, sola gratia, grace alone, means this, that salvation is a free gift of God's grace and cannot be earned or merited by human effort. That salvation is a gift. It's given to the person from God by grace. It's not earned. It's not deserved or merited. You can't do anything to deserve it because it's already given to you, fully formed, fully packaged, fully accomplished as a gift. Now, the third is sola fide, by faith alone. So this gets at our role. How do we get this gift of salvation? Well, justification or being sorry, being made right with God is by faith alone in Jesus Christ and not by any works or merit of our own. So the way that we have salvation is by receiving it. How do you receive it? By faith. What does faith mean? To trust it. Trust that God has done what he said he would do and has accomplished in Jesus. Specifically, in Jesus. And this brings us to our fourth solo. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and humanity. And his sacrificial death on the cross is the only sufficient payment for sin. That Jesus has paid the price for sin, so you don't have to. Christ has sacrificed himself for sin. This is why it's all about Jesus all of the time. That Jesus is God's means of salvation. And so there aren't other sacrifices needing to be made 
for your forgiveness. There aren't other things that need to be done, rituals or sacrifices that need to be made for your salvation. It's a once and for all time sacrifice in the person and work of Jesus. This is the sufficient payment. Now the fifth soli deo gloria is glory to God alone. This means that all glory and honor belong to God alone. And our ultimate purpose is to glorify God in all that we do. And when you look at the five solas, it just makes sense to go, oh, this is just all about God. Like, this is about how good God is. By good, I mean holy. This is how loving God is. This is how faithful God is. This is how able God is to save humanity. Nobody gets the glory but God. So even like the idea that this tradition would make much of men and women, that would make much of these roles, that would worship these offices, all of it is a detraction from the glory of God. He should be the one that gets all the glory, all the attention, and all the honor. Now, when Christ is at the center of the church again, what does this result in? It's a cure for the disease of soul-crushing religion. Tradition that does not point to the sufficiency of Christ is to the detriment of the believer. Tradition that sets before you things you need to do in order to feel saved or to be saved is a detriment to the Christian. Tradition that glorifies men in other positions above Christ or even actions or rituals is a detraction from the greatness of Jesus. All of this, when this is remedied through a right gospel, when this is remedied through right ministry of the church, when this is remedied by having the scriptures again at the center, this is a life-changing relief for the average person who's dying for grace, who's dying for help. God is the one who saves. And the heart of the struggling everyday person has access to full and complete salvation. And church could again be a place of growth and healing. So what does this lead? This, is, this leads to full-blown like revival. The average person is going, well, what do I want? Dead, soul-crushing religion? Or do I want electrifying good news in Christ? No wonder it took the world by storm. Now, what this began is a global shift that all sorts of changes were happening all over the world in different countries. So this starts in Germany with Martin Luther. So we have Lutheranism, right? Founded by Martin Luther in Germany, Lutheranism emphasized all of these things, the authority of scripture, salvation by faith alone, and the priesthood of all believers. But what they do, what Lutheranism did though, is was forced to split from the Catholic Church. Luther never wanted to leave the Catholic Church or cause schism. Luther's heart was reform of the Catholic Church. Okay? And so, likewise, in Switzerland, 
a man named John Calvin championed the reformation of the church there. And he was emphasizing the sovereignty of God, predestination, and the belief that the Bible is the ultimate authority for religious truth. So here's the Switzerland Reformation. At the same time in, in Switzerland and the Netherlands, we have the Anabaptist movement. And they were emphasizing the need for personal conversion and adult baptism and rejected the idea of the state church and called for a separation of church and state. So that's the reform that they were pushing for. Also, we have the Presbyterians, which was came out of Scotland under John Knox. And Presbyterianism emphasized the importance of representative governance by elders or presbyters in the church. And... Um, and more of a return to kind of the apostolic model of the scriptures. So these are all examples. Later, we have the Baptist movement that emerged in England and the United States. And the Baptists emphasized the importance of believers' baptism, religious freedom, and the autonomy of the local church. So what ends up happening in Protestantism, again, protest, resulted in more and more branches of these churches off of the kind of oneness that was there in the first 1,000 years of the church. Anglicanism is the English Reformation. So the Anglican church is the church that came out of that English version of all of this with the support of King Henry VIII and under the leadership of Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. The Anglican Church was described as the Via Media, or the Middle Way, coined by Richard Hooker. It was a middle way between the extremes of the Roman Catholic Church and what was increasingly prevalent, the Radical Protestantism movement, which veered away from all tradition and Episcopal authority and accountability. So what you end up having, having then is you have the continuing Eastern Orthodox Church. You now have the Roman Catholic Church. And now you have Protestantism. And Protestantism is tending to veer away from the tradition completely and saying, we have the Bible. We can determine for ourselves what church and life should look like. Now, the downside of that is just that complete independence even from the early church. Now, the original reformers always had in mind that they were actually just returning to the early church. They weren't cutting themselves off from it. Now, I'm not saying all of Protestantism cuts itself off from the early church because it can't, one, because it's in Christ, and two, because they're in the scriptures. So that's going to lead to continuity no matter what. But I think there's also this part of going this kind of hyper-independence. And what we see in the Reformation and Protestantism that follows is all of this continuing splintering and diversity that says we are specifically this, so we are not with you. The Anglican Church sought to do something different. Take the principles of the five solas, return to the true gospel, return to the scriptures, and maintain the great tradition. This is what made Anglicanism the middle way. So they sought to hold together those tensions. 
that the church was and is founded on the scriptures of the apostles and the prophets and is the highest authority, but also has a rich inheritance in the great tradition of the apostolic church, and that they had a duty to defer to its wisdom while using reason to discern how they were meant to express that in their day and in their culture. You can see that in some of the most notable things that came out of the Reformation in Anglicanism, mainly the Book of Common Prayer, written by Thomas Cramner. He shows this beautiful tension, pulling it together, of preserving the worshiping tradition of the Catholic Church through the explicit use of Scripture and forming the daily prayers of the people and the structures of the liturgy with the scriptures themselves, all Christ-centered and gospel-rich. This is what Anglicanism was from the beginning. And it's because of this that the Anglican Church was able to preserve its standing with the Eastern Orthodox and even with the Roman Catholics who they're in disagreement with, to hold their standing of legitimate apostolic succession so that their ordination orders, bishops, presbyters, priests, and deacons, were viewed as legitimate in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, just as there's a dark side or danger having to do with tradition where it can become deadening, there's also a danger in reform and in protest. Do you know what that danger is? It's schism. So when separation is how you handle disagreement, separation becomes really hard to stop. Again, the early reformers didn't actually want that separation. They were forced out. But through the centuries, it became increasingly common for Protestant churches to find themselves separating from one another over theological issues, churchmanship, relational issues, and even to this day, the color of the carpet or whether or not you should have cookies after service. Now, let's be honest, bad church coffee might be, wor might be worthy of schism. No, I'm just kidding, it's not. Now, here's what we end up with then. This leads to the church into more and more factions, which brings us more to today. And today we have a Christian world that is marked by denominationalism. So again, we have the continuing Eastern Orthodox, the continuing Roman Catholic. We have the Protestant with Anglicanism as the Via Media. But then we have all of these subsections of groups. From the Lutherans came the Evangelical Free Church. From the Anabaptists came the Mennonite and the Amish. From the Calvinist or the Reformed, we have the Presbyterian and the Baptist. And from Anglicanism, we have Methodism. Now, interestingly enough, we don't have time to go through all this today, but if we keep, if we keep kind of going on the family tree, what comes out of Anglicanism is Methodism. And then what comes out of Methodism is really the root in its revival. John and Charles Wesley's um, revival. And then we have all these other revivals that take place, like the Welsh revivals and the Scottish revivals. And we it's really hard for me not to want to get into history of revival and renewal at this point. But what's interesting as you kind of go down the family tree is what comes out of Anglicanism 
Methodism is then Pentecostalism and the charismatic movements. That that's actually that outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the emphasis actually comes out of the via media. But we don't have time to unpack all of that. Where it leads us to today is this. The church world that we exist in has continued to splinter over and over and over and over. What we're left with today is 40,000 plus Protestant denominations. Now, I think that's a little dramatized because we're not actually viewing each other as in disagreement with everybody else. I don't think that's true of most denominations or church groups. Instead, they see themselves loosely connected within the body of Christ, ultimately connected through Jesus and connected through one another, through similarities, but having their own kind of independence. But when we have a world with thousands and thousands of individual churches and fellowships of churches and denominations and traditions, and then you got house churches, rather than try and explain all those variations, I find it helpful to break them down into a few key categories or streams. So here's the ones we have. We have the historic church, which is the Orthodox, the Catholic, and the Anglican. Then we have the evangelical church, and that's where you have kind of like your E-Free, your Baptist, Reformed Church of Canada, Alliance churches. Then you have your Pentecostal and Charismatic churches, some of the fastest growing churches in the country. In our area, we have churches like Oceanside, Community Church, Generations, Vineyard, Bethel Hill Song. Those are not in our area, but you get the idea. These kind of more Pentecostal, Charismatic churches. And then we have what I've decided to call kind of our social justice churches. And these are churches that are focused on like ministry to the poor, social issues, social reform, um, things like that. And you might have like maybe the United Church of Canada might fit into that. Some of the Lutheran Presbyterian churches maybe in our area and some independent churches. Now, it's not that any of these streams only believe in one thing over the other, but what they do tend to do in each of these streams is tend to focus on very specific things that they make their primary emphasis. And this is how many people choose the church that they go to, right? If you want a more Bible teaching church, you go to an evangelical church. If you want more emphasis on the spiritual gifts, you go to a charismatic or Pentecostal church. If you want to engage with social issues, then you find one of those churches. And if you want to really experience a traditional or historic service with a focus on the on communion and the Lord's table, then you would choose one of the historic churches. So what we end up with then is we have kind of those five S's of the apostolic church that we looked at last week and briefly at the beginning of our time here today are actually kind of have turned into streams of the church around the world. You have the historic churches, the Orthodox Catholic, that are really focused on the sacrament. You have the evangelical churches that are really focused on the Bible. You have the Pentecostal and charismatic churches really focused on the supernatural. You have the social justice churches that are really focused on social issues. 
Now, I'll be honest with you. I think there's beauty in that, but I grieve it. I grieve it as well because I think, I don't think the apostolic essentials are meant to be separate. And what I think has happened is all the like-minded people tend to congregate together away from those others whom they would benefit from and be balanced by. So let's say it's an overemphasis on the sacrament and, and an underemphasis on the scriptures. I think those would mutually serve each other if they were together more. If all the scholars gather in one stream of the church, it's at the detriment of the whole of the church. If all those gifted in supernatural gifts clump together, then the Bible teaching church misses out on the actual doing of the word with one another instead of just talking about it. And all of the streams, I think, could really grow in dealing and engaging and serving in social issues. Now, where that leads us to is the space of what does it mean to be the via media today? What does it mean for us to be a part of the middle way? And I think the vision that we're trying to present here at Christ Church is to say, what if we could be all of these things? What if we could major on Scripture as our highest authority, with a high view of the sacraments, with a supernatural function that we share together, that we live sacrificially and we live evangelistically, meaning that we're seeking to lead people to Jesus, and that we do so congruent with the great tradition, that we would follow it, that we would not see ourselves as independent or making this up on our own, but that we're part of a story that's already been happening. And that we could together build a church that emphasizes all of these things, that is well-rounded and healthy, handles the scriptures with passion and clarity and necessity, while seeking for participation in Jesus at the table and actively growing in maturity in how we express those gifts. Because I actually think the supernatural functions most healthily within the balance of all the rest, that our worship would be full of his presence, that we would live sacrificially, caring for each other and caring for the needs of our community, and that we would be bold in our proclamation of the gospel to the world. I think this is what it means to be the via media today. And I think that Anglicanism is strategically planted. Not It's not perfect, but I think it falls into this bracket to go, we've always sought to hold all these things together. And what we're seeing more and more today is that our church is being filled from all these different backgrounds. People who are grew up evangelical or Pentecostal or grew up on, um, on doing social justice work. And now we're coming together to say, I felt like it's imbalanced. I feel like I need more. I feel like I need to be in consistency with the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I, 
I truly believe that Anglicanism offers that. And that at Christ Church, there's a recognition to go, we want the whole gamut. We don't just want to specialize in one area. What we want to specialize on is unity in Christ expressed in all of these areas. With scriptures and sacrament um, as our highest. So this is, I think, just kind of a good basic introduction for many of us to go, what exactly is Anglicanism and why would I want to actually choose to be an Anglican? Not just, I found myself in an Anglican church and it's actually okay. And actually, I'm, I'm growing and I'm here in Jesus. And it's, but I don't want Anglicanism just to kind of be an accident. What if we can actually look at it and go, we actually see its strategic value for creating unity in the church. We see its strategic value for creating balance, that we'd be more like the apostolic church, where we're not all the same, but we all have different gifts and different emphasis. And that I actually want to be a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church and make that decision. And so next week, what we're going to look at is kind of baptism and confirmation and what it looks like for a person to say, I actually want to be in the Anglican Church. I actually see where this is headed. I see where it fits in church history. I see what it's like in my local context. And I think, I, I think I'm in because I see that it serves Christ well. It honors Jesus well. And I think it's a great way to follow him. So... My friends, this is the way of Jesus in the middle way, the via media of what it means to be an Anglican. I hope it serves you well. Please don't hesitate to reach out if you have more questions or things you'd love us to cover in the future. All right, blessings, friends, and hopefully we get to see you on Sunday.